entering the Freedom Hut. There was a Democrat debate last night. It was a debacle, but there was some interesting stuff that I'll tell you about today. You don't have to watch the debate. Just listen to the Buck Sexton Show. Also, a pandemic approaching U.S. shores. How concerned should you be? We got that and more coming up. This, this is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One Make no mistake. America, great. You're a great American. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. I think that uh, Donald Trump thinks it would be better if he's president. I do not think so. Vladimir Putin thinks that Donald Trump is, should be president of the United States. And that's why Russia is helping you get oh, elected so you'll Lord. lose to him. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. It was great last night, man. It was like... It was like watching two guys at the retirement home be like, I'm running bingo tonight. No, I'm running bingo tonight. Bloomberg and Bernie getting after it right there. Right off the top, Bloomberg with a, with a low blow on Russia wants you to win. And Bernie's like, how dare you? I challenge you to a, I was going to say arm wrestling contest, but I don't, I don't, who would win that one? Something. They'd have to figure it out. So I, I did my duty last night, team. I watched and live tweeted the debate, lighting it up, obviously, on the on the uh, the Twitter. I should post some of it today to uh, Facebook as well. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. If you do not already follow me there, it's a great way to communicate with me and the rest of the team and producer Mark. Producer Mark is in there all the time defending the honor of the Avengers franchise. Uh, I would also say that last night was the... Biggest waste of two hours that I think I've had in many ways since watching the first two hours of The Avengers. But I will go back and watch the third hour, which I didn't even realize existed because I bailed. Here's what you need to know about the debate last night. Um, and then we'll we'll get into some of the specific. There were some policy moments here and there, but here's what you really need to know. Uh, first of all, it's a total debacle. These networks are not able to put on what they think they can, which is a a high standard, journalistically uh, superior event where we get into all the issues. These are TV journalists. I mean, they're they're completely replaceable. A lot of them don't even know really anything about politics. And CBS, it was a total mess last night, an absolute mess. In fact, if CBS's plan was to run a debate so poorly that all the candidates on stage, by comparison, looked competent... Mission accomplished, CBS. You could watch the debate last night. You would have said to yourself, well, these Democrats probably run things better than the people that are running this debate. That's for sure. Uh, it was really overall very JV. The moderators were weak. Their questions were bad. It's a reminder that really what they should do. I mean, I think we should do this like an all-star game in some of the sports leagues. We should have people vote. You know, there should be some kind of an online poll or some some polling company for who in the media space should be the moderators. And we should do an open vote. I mean, I think that's or at least, you know, you could do it of, I don't know, Democrats for their primary, whatever it is. Um, But you should then also allow it to be streamed by all the networks. There shouldn't be this one network at a time thing. It shows favoritism. And the fact that Fox doesn't get a Democratic debate just shows what a bunch of wimps the Democrats are. It would be an excellent debate, I I promise you, and it would have huge ratings. And they'd have Martha McCallum and Brett Baer and probably Chris Wallace. I mean, you already already know who the moderators for Democrat debate would be, and they would do an excellent job. 
They would ask questions that aren't unfair. They would ask real questions. Last night was was just nonsense. A lot of wokeness questions. Who's the most woke on the stage? Who can tell us uh, how they're going to do the most for, you know, minority candidates, even though Joe Biden, by the way, constantly tells us that he has done so much in his career for minority, can- for uh, not minority candidates, for minority voters. Um, you ask him for the specifics and all of a sudden he gets very hazy. <clears throat> um, you ask him for the specifics and it starts to fall apart. Uh, Joe Biden, I was hoping last night somebody would say something about the Magna Carta just so Biden could start with, I, I, wrote, I wrote that bill. Because that's what he says about everything. I wrote the dang bill. Um, he really didn't. Biden, that, that he has been the great hope of the establishment tells you all you need to know about the state of the Democrat establishment right now. Tells you a, a whole lot. Um, here was some of the, I mean, look, I, I wish I could drill down on the the major takeaway. I, I like to start whenever we have these discussions, team, about a debate like this. I like to start with a 30,000 foot view and then and then drill down in the specifics. The 30,000 foot view is that the Democrats are crazy and that their party has completely gone off the rails that they have unimpressive candidates, that they have policy proposals that will not work, that they're not operating in the realm of reality or math. They don't care about what we have learned as a country from history. And they didn't reassure anyone last night who, if you had questions about these Democrats last night, if you had any concerns about their competency and their ability to do what is necessary here, last night did not make you feel any better about any of that. Here, for example, is, I mean, just to give you, I'm saying they're silly, I'm saying they're crazy. Well, let, let me give you some examples of this. Joe Biden, talking about gun control. they got to bring up gun control to Democrat debate, even though nothing ever happens. It's just a waste of everyone's time. States are, you know, blue states are engaged in gun control grabs. But the federal level, it's been decades, right? Here's what Biden says. Here's his contribution. Mr. I wrote the bill. He has to yell it. Play three. 150 million people have been killed since 2007 when Bernie voted to exempt the gun manufacturers from liability. More than all the wars, including Vietnam, from that point on. You heard that right. 150 million people, he says. He didn't stumble. It wasn't a a misspeak. It wasn't 150 million, I mean 1,000. No. No. 150 million people, half the population of the United States, according to Joe Biden, have died in gun violence incidents since the year 2007. Does he not hear himself? Is he just so robotic in the memorization of canned phrases? And has he been just so trained by handlers and speechwriters that he doesn't even think about the words that come out of his mouth? I'm not, am I being unfair? Would you go on TV if you were trying to be the leader of the free world and say, you know, 30, 30, 30 billion people a year die in car accidents in this country? And then just let that hang out there? You probably, I mean, 30, I think, by the way, it might even be 50, you know, I think 30,000 is about right. 30,000 people, something like that, die in auto related accidents every year in the United States. Maybe, maybe it's 20 to 30,000. Um, if you said 30 billion, though, I feel like you'd probably correct yourself. 
We are judging these people. They want a tremendous amount of power. They want power over your lives. They want to be making decisions that will affect the economy, that will affect your children's future. We should be willing to judge them harshly. Joe Biden's too old for this. Bernie Sanders is too old for this. Mike Bloomberg is too old for this. Elizabeth Warren, too old for this. And yet here we are. And you'd say, oh, Buck, but what about Trump? Trump is a dynamo. Trump, you know, rally after rally. I mean, he's one of the most engaging, energetic public, uh, not just public you know, speakers, public performers I've ever seen. They didn't really think that Trump is is lacking a step these days. Does he just mumble and meander off into, into nothing? No, they say, oh, he lies. He exaggerates. He's a salesman. But he's a salesman who gets the deal done. He doesn't forget where he is. He doesn't forget. He doesn't forget what what his job is. So Biden had a, a night where also I don't know why he thinks it's a good idea to, to shout. It's like, let me tell you this. I wrote the bill and I did my my whole life, my whole life. Everything with Joe Biden starts my whole life, my whole career. I wrote that. I did that. This guy is such a poser. He didn't he didn't do these things. He's just another senator who was voting or his staff, you know, added a paragraph to some bill passed 20 years ago or something. Joe Biden's not a leader. And all this talk about how he's vice president. I mean, let's be honest, vice president stretching back to the very first vice president in the United States history. Generally don't do do all that much. We know this. But Biden's shouting about how he does so much all the time. It's it's simply absurd. Um, But if we're going to talk really absurd, we could get into Bernie Sanders on the numbers. This was remarkable. The the Medicare for All is the primary policy proposal of Bernie Sanders. I would note uh, his other policy proposals are also far left and that he is, and people are increasingly waking up to this, a Marxist. He is a Marxist. He's not not a a Denmark-style European, you know, big government socialist. He's actually further left than they are on a whole bunch of issues, on all really the important issues. And by the way, what do we even what do we even think a Bernie Sanders foreign policy would look like? Do we even know? Of course not. But you had Bernie when pushed on the cost, and he gets all flustered about this, as if it shouldn't matter what the cost is. When Bernie is pushed on this issue, he makes up numbers that no, the same way that Biden should not be able, it should not be able to come out of Joe Biden's mouth that 150 million people in the last decade or so have died in gun violence in America. That's that's crazy talk. Uh, this is also crazy talk from Bernie Sanders. Play clip uh, eight, producer Mark. What the Health and Human Services have said in analyzing health care costs, what Yale recent Yale study has said is that your program would cost some 50 trillion dollars over a 10 year period. We would continue to pay in some cases 10 times more for the same exact prescription drugs. What every study out there, conservative or progressive says, Medicare for all will save money. Ours will cost about 45 billion, not 60 trillion. That's right. This is the proverbial chocolate cake that will not make you fat. Eat as much of it as you want. 
there's enough for everybody, it will never run out. And you don't have to pay anything for it. That's what Bernie Sanders is offering. Does anyone who is an adult who really thinks about this believe what Bernie Sanders is saying? It's going to save money to give every American the same health care. That's what would happen. Medicare for all means we're, we're all in the same health care plan all of a sudden, which would de facto turn all health care providers into government employees. You know why? The government's going to determine what the reimbursement rates are for Medicare for all. So the government's going to decide who's getting money in the health care system. All of a sudden, you know, your, your hope that if you have to have heart surgery or if you have to go get cancer treatment and you're going to go see, you know, that's the point in life where you want the guy with all the fancy degrees in the, or gal with all the fancy degrees on the wall and, you know, decades of experience and they're like a superstar in the field and whatever, you know, whatever you got to do to get that treatment. I mean, your life is on the line. No, now you're going to go in and it'll be like a glorified DMV employee telling you, yeah. I don't know. Maybe you've got antibiotic-resistant bacteria, but uh, you know, maybe it's maybe it's something else. I don't know. Go to go to CVS. Here's a prescription. See you later. You had your three minutes are up. Yeah, I mean, it'll be it'll be free, but that's what you're looking at. And sure, if you have an ear infection or you have strep throat, it might be really nice. You get to go to the the local government doctor, and you know, you'll wait about two or three hours in the waiting room. Uh, but then, you know, you'll you'll get your prescription. But if you if you have chronic back pain, desperately need to have some kind of spinal surgery or something, you know, the government, I'm sure, will give you really excellent pain meds. Hopefully, you won't become addicted and, you know, it'll ruin your life, but they'll, they'll prescribe you uh, in the three-minute visit that you're offered by this Medicare for All program that will now be the health care for the entire country. They'll give you that prescription for painkillers, and, you know, you'll wait six to nine months before you have a surgery where also what happens if it goes wrong? You're going to sue the government? Everyone's going to want to sue the government now. The government's got endless uh, endless pockets, right? The pockets of the government are deeper than anybody else's. They can print money. So they're going to have to institute tort reform, but it'll be the bad kind of tort reform because it'll effectively be what prosecutors have in this country, which is, a, which is qualified immunity. So doctors that are going to be operating on you because the government's going to be the one on the hook for, you know, what, what, whatever it is that... Uh, you're suing them for because the government's going to be the one determining the procedures. The government's going to be the ones that are setting the reimbursement rates. You know, that's guess what? They're going to say, no, you, you can't keep suing because they're going to otherwise you'll just sue doctors out of existence all over the place. And there won't be able to be a market increase in premium rates for insurance because that's not even going to matter anymore. Because doctors won't be able to charge you different fees for different uh, different fees based on their skill and their service level. I mean, I know that we're just we're just skating around the surface of this disaster right now. I mean, I could spend the whole show just talking about all the ways that this is a terrible idea. And whenever he brings up Canada, whenever he brings up the UK, he brings up these other countries. Yeah, they also have very large private health care systems. And that's where the rich people go when they really need it. And do we want to do we want the Canadian economy or do we want the American economy? Which country is more the engine of wealth and with wealth, freedom and prosperity, not just for its own people, but for the rest of the world? Canadians are lovely people. I'm very fond of them. Canada is not a world leader in anything except having water, fresh water. It's true. So what exactly? And probably polar bears. Bears. What are we really thinking we're going to accomplish here? Bernie Sanders is saying this is going to cost $45 billion. Really? giving everybody the right to go in by law and say, hey, treat me. I'm here. Make my medical problems go away. 
You got no skin in the game, no copay, no nothing. Because his Medicare for All proposal, no copays, no cost sharing. This destroys individual mar- individual ingenuity. It destroys any sense of, of a market-based healthcare system. It's a disaster. I promise you. Look, I would love it if I could see the best doctors and never pay for health care. I have health insurance. I try to go to the doctors as infrequently as possible because our medical system is already largely ruined by regulations written by people like Bernie Sanders. You always hear about how, you know, public school teachers, all the teachers unions, your teachers just want to teach. Yeah, doctors actually do want to heal people, but they spend all their time fending off lawsuits, doing paperwork and dealing with the bureaucracy because the bureaucracy keeps trying to tell them how to do medicine because people say, oh, I just I want the state to take care of me and keep me safe and warm at night. The state doesn't do that. It'll do other things to you at night. It won't keep you safe and warm. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I will say it is kind of fun to do the debates these days because all the conservatives, man, we just sit back and it is listening to these Democrats. It it is like a mystery science theater vibe when you sit there and hear the crazy stuff that they're saying. And you get other and and all the conservatives I know in media who are who are reasonably insightful and clever. We're all just trying to outdo one another all the time with pointing out the absurdity that is on display. And I've got to imagine there are a lot of a lot of real intelligent Democrats sitting at home who got to be watching these debates saying, oh, my gosh, what, what what the heck is going on here? What are we doing? What is happening with our party? This is crazy. Because from my side of it, as much as I kind of weep for the country, as a political analyst and a, and a radio host, this year is magnifique. It is fantastic. Uh, it really is. I, I guess that would be fantastique as well. It's great, man. These Democrats, they're giving me plenty of material, that is for sure. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. But, uh, but on this issue of, of the potential political peril you could you and Democrats could suffer in Florida, Congresswoman Donna Shalala said, come on down to Miami and meet with the people who have been affected by his regime. Would you be willing to do that and hear them out? I go, I go all over the country, of course. Huber is a dictatorship. I've said that eight million times. But that does not mean to say, as Obama pointed out, that even under a dictatorship, you could teach people to read and to write, that you could provide health care to all people. He just doubles down on this because he's a Marxist. Triples down. He, he won't back off this. He, he will not accept that it is unacceptable to pick out one minute area of how a regime operated and, and highlight that, elevate that as something that we need to hear. Yeah, of course a dictatorship can teach some people to read. Of course a dictatorship can feed some people. Uh, you know, totalitarian regimes don't want to eliminate all of their subjects, right? They, they don't want to kill everybody because then you don't have a country anymore. But they enslave everybody psychologically and physically, and they destroy freedom. And freedom is anathema to a dictatorship. It is anathema to authoritarianism. And Bernie Sanders is not making anybody who is concerned about his totalitarian impulses feel any better. I read to you about what the Cuban regime was like in the 60s and the 70s. They've repudiated none of it, by the way. The Cuban government is still a totalitarian kleptocracy of thugs. 
uh, quite honestly, I mean, in a just world, you know, we would send down the 82nd. I'm not saying we should do this, but if we were really just seeking justice, you would send down the 82nd Airborne and you would have trials once we had rounded all of the Cuban leadership up. Uh, you would have trials for war crimes, and a lot of them would end up at the end of a rope or firing squad, whatever we preferred. Uh, the Cuban government is full of murderous, brutal thugs. Far worse. Far worse, by the way. You know, we, we hear so much about, about Putin, and, and Putin's saying he's no friend of Putin, and Putin's such a bad guy. Putin legitimately, and I know we, we've gotten this whole Russia collusion insanity to the point now where you can't even have a normal discussion about Russia. Uh, the Soviet Union, yeah, obviously enslaved hundreds of millions of people, murdered millions, tens of millions of people. The Soviet Union, different story. R Russia, yeah, Putin is effectively an authoritarian, no question. Uh, although Mike Bloomberg has questions about authoritarian China. We'll get to that. Um, but if you were to look at... Russian public support for Putin, it's high. People in Russia, and I, and you will not hear this from other, other people in this country generally, because we're all, oh, Putin is the worst. Yeah, Putin's a bad guy. He's essentially um, KGB slash Russian mafia running the country. So if we had somebody who was ex-Intel, if, if I were to, this is kind of cool, actually, sounds like a good, good book. If I were to have joined some you know, organized crime family and ran it, and then I became the president of the United States. That would be something like, and, and seize total control. That's that's effectively what's going on in Russia. But Putin has also presided over what the Russian people believe is a restoration of Russian international dignity after, I mean, it, it was very sad for them for a long time to be, after the fall of the wall, completely impoverished and felt like their, every, you know, their world was in free fall. Uh, there was a, a lack of a feeling of dignity among the Russian people in the 1990s when, okay, now they've got freedom, but they don't have an, they don't have an economy to speak of. Putin has presided over the creation of a Russian middle class. Again, see, now people say, oh, Buck, you're doing what, what Bernie does about, about Cuba. No, Putin is not nearly as bad as Castro and the Castro regime. And, you know, Raul Castro has done things. I mean, the Castros are responsible for the kind of war crimes, as I said, where, where we should, if we could, round them up and have them executed. And that would be fair. That would be just. Um, now, you might say Putin probably should spend a lot of time in prison. He's definitely had journalists executed. You know, he's bad, but he's not, he's not as bad. But Bernie Sanders, because the Democratic Party right now has gotten so, you know, utterly and completely wrapped up in this Russia collusion it, it's they they believe this no matter what the evidence, no matter what we can provide them with. Putin is really, really bad and a scary man. But, you know, he'll say nice things about Cuba, which is I've been, which is all I'm trying to say is that the Cuban regime is worse than Putin's government. Um, if you look at the totality of what has gone on. Right. The, the Cuban regime is, is in a different category. Putin is bad, but people don't want to hear about what's really going on in Russia. They just prefer to think of it as the biggest threat to the United States because Hillary Clinton lost the 2016 election. China is a much bigger threat to America, as we know. Um, but Bernie Sanders, I, I sit here and I, I wonder what has befallen this country and how, how we could have reached a point where Bernie Sanders is even a serious consideration for any higher office. 
I mean, I think Vermont should be a little bit embarrassed, quite honestly, that this has been the senator that they've had for so many years. And he was their only congressman for a number of years before that. Uh, Bernie, of course, has the usual Marxist uh, claptrap about bringing working people back into the Democratic Party. Play clip six, producer Mark. Yes, My sir. favorability okay. nationally, I believe, are the highest up here, as a matter of fact. All right. But point is, the point is, the way we are going to beat Trump, which is what everybody up here wants, is we need a campaign of energy and excitement. We need to have the largest voter turnout in the history of the United States. We need to bring working people back into the Democratic Party. We need to get young people voting in a way they have never done before. That is what our campaign is about. He's a Marxist. He's mobilizing the youth who don't understand very much about politics, let's be honest, and claiming that he's going to do so much to help workers. You know who workers work for? Corporations, people who have enough assets on their own to have businesses where they hire people, and yes, even people in this country who are billionaires. That is who workers work for. Do we really think that they will be better off with Bernie Sanders determining that all of their bosses are bad people who don't know what they're doing? There's a very clear choice that has emerged for Democrats between uh, Sanders and Bloomberg. This is the the far left of the party versus the more technocratic, such as it is, uh, Democrat elitist limousine liberal wing of the party. And I think you got to you got to figure right now, Bernie Sanders side of this is, is going to be the one that ends up victorious. In fact, Bloomberg thought that by entering into this contest, he may prevent, he may actually stop Bernie Sanders from becoming the nominee. When you look at the numbers in some of these states, because he's taking a lot of what you'd have to assume are Biden votes, I think that's what Bloomberg is really peeling off. Uh, he may be the reason that Bernie Sanders marches to the nomination. And that should be something that concerns all of us. Um I said to you yesterday, and I think some people were a little surprised, and I, I shared this publicly on Twitter as well, that Bernie Sanders is not even a smart socialist. I, I really stand behind that. I don't think Bernie Sanders is a smart socialist. Uh, there are people who I know who are of the left who are learned. They've read a lot. They're very smart. Uh, they can make sophisticated arguments about socialism. They're wrong, but they can make sophisticated arguments. And they can anticipate where the other side is going. There's not a lot of them because the primary motivation behind uh, the primary among the primary motivations, I should say, behind Marxism and and socialist thought is the replacement of God of uh, God with the state. Uh, It's also giving people a a reason and it gives them a sense of empowerment. It gives them uh, an argument for why they're on the side of good. So it really is a it's a pseudoscience. Marxism is pseudoscience. They always pretend there's that they can just look at this on a board and add up how, you know, the arc of history and the transition from capitalism into uh, into socialism and the revolution of the proletariat. And I mean, all this, you know, dictatorship, of the proletariat and a, and a revolution that would bring it about. They think that they can look at this on a board and bring it all about. But that's nonsense. Right. It's pseudoscience. It always has been. And it really is a religious replacement before it is an economic replacement. The economic arguments are just a means of mobilizing people in support of this secular religion, if you will. 
That's what Marxism really is all about, which when you start to line this up with Bernie Sanders, doesn't at all make sense now. You know, the the social justice component of everything that he says, you know, it's not fair that some people have more than others. That is a, a fundamental central thought for Bernie Sanders and for Marxists for as long as this has been a theory. It's just not fair. And if we have to pull down people who have more so that people who have less feel better and we'll call that justice, we're willing to do that. But to do that, you always have to use a very heavy hand of government. You have to empower the state well beyond what the founders had in mind in this country. And that's why Bernie Sanders is, in fact, fundamentally un-American in his beliefs. He is. This is the big problem that the Democrats face. This is why putting a socialist forward as your primary candidate is going to be an issue that I think will continue to come back and, and haunt them long afterwards. Um, Bernie Sanders, of course, claims that he is not radical. Play, uh, play 19, producer Mark. The misconception, and you're hearing it here tonight, is that the ideas I'm talking about are radical. They're not. In one form or another, they exist in countries all over the world. Healthcare is a human right. We have the necessity, the moral imperative to address the existential threat of climate change. Other countries are doing that. We don't need more people in jail, disproportionately African-American, than any other country on earth. Not a radical idea. All countries are different, Bernie. They have different histories, different uh, rule of law, different individual freedom. I mean, what what is he even saying? This sounds good. To, this sounds good because he's a demagogue. I mean, he's a guy who spent his whole life just repeating the stuff. And, you know, this is oh, people in college. They read some Noam Chomsky and oh, America's not so great. It's actually pretty terrible. And look at all these other great countries. Forget about the bad stuff that they've done. I mean, this is really just a moral relativism that the people that adopt this think elevates them. And I've always said this, that conservatives, just patriots, we could say that patriots take a tremendous pride in being American. The left in this country has always taken pride in thinking that they're better than America. And that informs a lot of their thinking, a lot of the approaches that they take on on, on policy issues, particularly on foreign policy, but on policy issues more broadly. Um, his ideas aren't radical. Then why has the Democratic Party adamantly refused to adopt them for the last, oh, I don't know, 50 years or so, let's just say, whenever it has come up. And it's been coming up longer than that. You know, there was there was an American Com Communist Party USA, CPUSA, was a real thing. There were socialists in this country stretching back to the rise of socialism in Europe. Right. And there's a whole history they don't teach in school. People don't learn about this. They don't understand that there were not just communist infiltrations during the Soviet era of the United States and of the United States government, but there were uh, journalists and academics and even politicians in America who were well-known, who were open socialists and felt a tremendous kinship to the great socialist power that was the Soviet Union. But that was a real fight. I mean, we have been having this debate stretching back to really the fall of... Uh, monarchies in Europe and the fall of the old, the, the, and the ancien regime, if you will, the old order of things after the First World War, you had the Soviet Revolution, 1917, the October Revolution. All of a sudden, the Soviet Union uh, adopts, and it, there's a very complicated series of processes that led to this, but the Soviet Union becomes the primary socialist power in the world. Remember, the United uh, Soviet Socialist Republics, right? USSR. People always seem to forget about this. Socialism, 
we, we throw the communism label around with the Soviets. The Soviets thought of themselves as socialists. And communism is just a flavor. It's just a branch of socialism. It has to do with the implementation of it. The ideas, the values, you know, Lenin, I, I've told you, the, the original, the very first Soviets in the, in, the, in the form of Lenin and Stalin, Yosef Zhugashvili, called himself Koba in the early days, which I always thought was interesting. And if you've watched Planet of the Apes, that's why the main bad guy ape in Planet of the Apes, Koba, it's a, an homage, I think, to Stalin and the rise of authoritarianism, um, and then referred to himself in a letter as Stalin, Man of Steel, in Russian. But they thought of themselves as social democrats. That's what they called themselves. So you'll see that they keep changing the terms, They keep, but ultimately that, that foundation of pseudoscience rooted in envy. I mean, that is, that is the, the way that Marxism is built. Bernie Sanders believes in that. Bernie Sanders is somebody who has always believed in that. And he is appealing to a very dark part of human nature that instead of trying to allow people to elevate themselves and encourage everyone to elevate themselves and put in place the best possible system to do that, Bernie Sanders wants to go around like that, that game that we've all played with the mallet where you hit the gophers on the head. You know, too much money, billionaire, boom, hit him with the mallet. Too much money, millionaire, boom, hit him with the mallet. That's the guy who wants to be the next leader of the free world. I think that's a bad idea. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. But it's easier to make when that Democratic candidate embraces the title of socialist and doesn't refute it. And the truth of the matter is Bernie Sanders is not a socialist. I mean, if you look it up in the dictionary, he's not calling for, you know, the the, the society to own the means of production and all of that stuff. Ah, here we go. What have I been telling you? David Axelrod over at CNN doing what we knew they would do. I mean, he's not really a socialist. It's not really socialism. He calls himself a socialist. You know, this reminds me of Democrats with the Islamic State. It's not Islamic and it's not a state. Mm, I don't think they get to determine that on behalf of ISIS. Remember when Obama used to insist on calling it ISIL? It was just pedantry. It was ridiculous. It was a pedantic nonsense move. Um... This is socialism, folks. Bernie Sanders is a socialist. You don't get to say, we want Denmark-style socialism, and then say, oh, but we're not really socialists. They just keep changing the definition. In fact, we already have a fair amount of socialism in America. That's part of the problem. Uh, The public school system is, in fact, a form of socialism. Uh, Medicare is a form of socialism. You start looking at a lot of these programs, folks, they, uh, they are socialized components of the U.S. economy. And I, I just have to laugh, though. They're going to try everything, including a guy who gets up every day and screams in microphones, I am a democratic socialist. You're going to have the media apparatus be like, I mean, he's not really a socialist, though. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I mean, he's going to say all that stuff, but he's not really a socialist. Oh, no, he is. He is most certainly a socialist. So let's all just put that in our pipe and smoke it as we determine who we're going to vote for this election. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.
It was 30, then it was 17. It's an incredible shrinking price tag. Uh, at some point has said is it, it is unknowable to even see what the price tag would be. Now there are new numbers going. I'll tell you exactly what it adds up to. It adds up to four more years of Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House, and the inability to get the Senate into Democratic hands. The time has come for us to stop acting like the presidency is the only office that matters. Not only is this a way to get Donald Trump reelected, we got a House to worry about. We got a Senate to worry about. And this is this is really important. Look, Hello. if you want to keep the House in Democratic hands, you might want to check with the people who actually turned the House blue. Forty Democrats who are not running you on want. your platform. They are running away from your platform as fast as they possibly can. Mayor Pete scoring a big hit there last night. Now, Mayor Pete's not going to be president. I don't even think he's really a serious vice presidential candidate, but he is now going to be. He's a Democrat figure that you will see and hear more of in the in the years, probably in the decades ahead. His point about Bernie Sanders and the damage that will be done to down ballot candidates is a serious one. That's a that's a real consideration. Democrats would be wise to pay some attention to what he is saying here, but I don't think that they really will. Mayor Pete also, he thinks that every time he has an opportunity to speak, it has to be a speech. And he's wrong about that. You can just speak like a normal person. It doesn't have to always be, well, when we bring together the country and unite in the glory of a wonderful future of hope and thinking about how we can do that uniting and hope and things. And you just be like, nah, man, I. I didn't like the movie. You know what I mean? You can just you can just respond like a normal person. It is one of the things that we take for granted about Trump that he has broken down the old established format of you have to speak to people when you're a politician like you're some weird political robot who's not a normal person. You have to use these canned phrases and everything has to be bringing it back to, you know, your your key talking point. No, you can also just be like, "Yeah, you know, I like cheeseburgers." You, you can do that as a politician. You're allowed to do that now. Or you can say, yeah, that guy in the back who works for CNN, he's a jerk. You're allowed to do that. You're allowed to speak the way that people speak, which I think is a, a great innovation. You know, the president, when he does a State of the Union address, I mean, there are times when the presentation should have a little more pomp and circumstance around it. But as a general matter, I, I prefer having a president who is just going to talk the way that people talk. And that's a new that's a new thing to be sure. Um, now, oh wait, before before I, um, well, there's there's the other Democrats out there, including from the Obama administration, that I think are watching this and recognizing what's going to happen. Um, Bernie Sanders is a huge risk to be sure for the Democrat Party because if if Biden runs against Trump and loses, you will have essentially. The Democrat Party making the same arguments in the next election and, you know, just they hate Trump, Russia, Trump's corrupt, all the same stuff. If Bernie Sanders loses, they're going to have no one to blame but themselves for running a crazy candidate on a crazy platform. So there's additional risk for, for running Bernie versus anyone else against Trump. Even Elizabeth Warren. Gosh, Elizabeth Warren, as, as much as she was... Ready to go. She was on the warpath against Bloomberg in the last debate. And and this time she wanted to tell. 
She thinks she's folksy and relatable. The reality of Elizabeth Warren is that she is sanctimonious and condescending to all normal Americans who understand that, which is why she does so well with the media, but does not do well outside of the bluest blue coastal corridors. Because when she does the whole, you know, my daddy was a my daddy was a coal miner or it wasn't a coal miner, whatever it was. My, my daddy was a male. No, that's. Well, she always talks about her daddy. I forget what it was, like a truck driver or something, you know, a normal person job, you know, a respectable job. But she always tells this story because it was Kasich who everything was, you know, you know, my dad was a mailman. OK, we get it. We've heard it a million times. Whew. Kasich, among among the most surly and uh, uncharismatic politicians I've ever had the misfortune of interviewing, I will tell you. I was not not a Kasich person at all. Never was, never will be. But Elizabeth Warren, she tells the story of bringing herself up. You know, I, my, I'm, my, my, my Cherokee heritage and in the Midwest. And But keep in mind, she ran to the Democrat power structure as fast as she could, lied about who she was to get in there, lied about who she was to get at the University of Pennsylvania and Ivy League school and then get into Harvard and teach at Harvard Law. Now she's worth like seven to ten million dollars. She's all, oh, but I'm just, I'm just like you. I'm a, it's total fraud. It's a total phony. Uh, pretends to care so much about Main Street and the big Wall Street banks. And ooh, she's really not. I, I, she didn't have anything particularly uh, worthwhile to say last night. I, I, I think she had a bad, as the debate went, she had a bad night. Um, but. Uh, Oh, Pete Buttigieg. I want to get back to him for a second. So we were trying to break this down for you. He, he, he had another pull. Look, he, he is a guy who sounds like he's always in the midst of his McKinsey consulting interview. You know, and he did. There was a moment last night where they asked for the greatest misconception about you. And it was like Mayor Pete's version was, you know, that I'm too unflappable. That's like when someone asks you at a job interview, Producer Mark, you ever done this? Someone ever asked you? First of all, it's a stupid question. So the people who ask this in job interviews, somebody should you know smack them upside the head. But people still do. Have you ever had the what's your biggest weakness in a job interview question? Yeah, yeah. you asked me that. No, I didn't. I know you didn't. Nobody I, was about, I was about to flip this table <laughs> and lose my mind. I would never ask that question. I have gotten that question. Yeah. Did you, do you remember what you said? I don't. It's, it's the dumbest question, question yeah. in the world. Because it's sort of like being on a first date, which, you know, there's similarities between a first date and a job interview in terms of you're, pre- you're presenting, you're being judged. It'd be like on a first date, if a girl was just like, you know, what's the worst thing about you? You're going to answer that question. Yeah. you got to find that out. Exactly. The whole game is I'm trying to hide that. <laughs> and that takes a month or two. For yeah, you exactly. And you'll yeah. figure it out on your own there, sweetness. You know, like it doesn't it doesn't need to be told up front. But because uh, I, I, I love the the usual way people do this is they say. Um, I take too much work on. I share the credit too fast. Yeah, like I, these, I work too hard. These humble brags. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah, mayor, mayor. Yeah, I work too hard. I make other people look bad because I work too hard, and then I feel guilty about it. Uh, mayor Pete, one of those. I'm too unflappable. I'm I'm too cool under pressure. You know. Uh, but he was right about one thing, which is that if you're talking about what Russia is trying to accomplish in this election, sowing chaos is definitely very high on the list. Play uh, play 21, please. I'll tell you what the Russians want. They don't have a political party. They want chaos. And chaos is what is coming our way. I mean, look, if you think the last four years has been chaotic, divisive, toxic, exhausting, imagine spending the better part of 2020 with Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump. Think about what that will be like for this country. And meanwhile... 
folks at home from South Carolina to South Bend are trying to figure out what any of this means for us. Because it's right that there is a progressive majority, an American majority, that wants to see real change, wants to see wages go up and go up faster than the cost of health and saving for retirement. But also there's a majority of the American people who I think right now just want to be able to turn on the TV, see their president, and actually feel their blood pressure go down a little bit instead of up through the roof. Mayor Pete's like, I'm super chill. Vote for me. (laughs) It's one way to go. There is an underlying truth here, and that is if the Democrats weren't so ideologically driven and so emotionally invested against Trump, the clear lane that they have would be to do a what would essentially be a Bill Clinton style triangulation here and say, we want to we want to do the things that Trump is the things that are going well in the economy. We're going to continue. We're going to bring the country together. We're going to work together. We're going to reach across the aisle. We're going to come up with solutions. We're going to heal the divide in this nation. What was how did Obama forget about how Obama governed? I know a lot of you talk about blood pressure rising. Forget about how Obama governed. Remember how Obama ran for office, you know, with a slogan, hope and change. And it was all bring us together. And, you know, I don't do this. I'm going to bring it together. We're going to love each other. We're going to be amazing. We're going to be fantastic. We're all going to hold hands and we're going to be friends. And. That was the way that he managed to crush two Republican presidential opponents. Now, he got very lucky with the financial downturn and all the rest of it. But the the messianic uniter role, if the Democrats had someone who was charismatic, that would be the real lane. They really only have two options. You only have two options against Trump. Scorched earth socialist lunacy, Bernie Sanders. What are you talking about? It's not scorched earth. Just, you know, lighting a few forest fires. Or the other alternative would be to bring someone forward who is charismatic and poses as a uniter while trying to get us to that socialist future. Right. They, they, the head fake Democrats so effectively stretching back for as long as I've been able to pay attention to the news, pretend to be one thing to get votes and then govern a different way when they're in power. And that uh, that option, if they were really looking to be able to defeat Trump, I think that would be the much more realistic path, much better path for them. Essentially, put someone forward who's a good salesperson, who's charismatic and who lies about what Democrats want. That's what Biden was supposed to be for them, but he's not good enough at it. That's what Bloomberg they're hoping now. Well, no, Bloomberg's just supposed to like buy it. I mean, he, he actually said last night when they were talking about congressional race, he's like, I bought that. And that should be Bloomberg's 2020 bumper sticker. I bought that. Whatever it is, doesn't matter. I bought that. And this is what you see the Democratic Party doing right now. They've had this choice between trying to put forward someone who will unite the party versus trying to have somebody who is just going to divide it. Uh, I'm sorry, unite the country versus somebody who's going to further exacerbate the division. And they've just gone with they've gone with the craziest left wing loon they can possibly find. And they wonder why there are a lot of people who have been in politics for a long time who are watching this thing saying, Democrats, stop being crazy. You're out of your minds. Who knows how this is really going to shake out, but it's going to be this is going to be the best year ever to cover American politics. That that is a promise that I can make to you. And I'm excited about it. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. 
Well, you're right. The economy is doing really great for people like Mr. Bloomberg and other billionaires. In the last three years, last three years, billionaires in this country saw an $850 billion increase in their wealth. But you know what? For the ordinary American, things are not so good. The question you might have thought was, what does Bernie Sanders think about billionaires? You know what the question was? What should we what should you make of the really low unemployment rate under President Trump? And why should we think that you'd be better at this? Bernie Sanders, as I've been saying, not even a good socialist. Let's bring in David Harsanyi. He's a friend of the show. He writes over at National Review. He's doing great stuff on NationalReview.com with regard to Bernie Sanders' defense of authoritarian regimes and how crazy it is. David, uh, what do you think? of? I, I want you to just run with this premise for a second. I don't even think Bernie Sanders is a learned socialist. I think he's just like a street corner demagogue on socialism. I don't know about that. I think he's just trying to find a way to talk about it without sounding like a crazy leftist that he that he is and that he's been forever. I mean, I don't know how learned he is, but I know that he's, you know, he's ridiculous and and, and lying about how lying about the last 45 years and how the last three years and the la- lies about everything, about how Americans are doing better. I mean, by almost any standard, American life is better. No, I mean, but if, if I and I know that we could never really find this out. And of course, he would say yes. I mean, do you think that Sanders has has he read Marx, Engels? Has he read Bakunin? Has he re- I mean, do you think do you think that he actually understands the philosophical roots of the ideology that he's now trying to foist upon America? Or does he just understand the slogans? Listen, I don't think he's a scholar or anything, but I'm pretty sure that probably when he was young, he probably picked up, you know, Mao or, or Marx or, and read into it and dabbled. I mean, it's such nonsense in general that I don't think you can really be learned about it because it doesn't make sense. It's always sort of flexible, as you hear. But do you think he really be- but you think he really believes it? I guess this is an oh, even more important question. Is he a true believer? Oh, my gosh, yes, I think so. I mean, listen, growing up, as I did in New York, I knew people like him. I mean, no one took them seriously. It's like your raging commie uncle, you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, your red diaper baby, people like that. He is one of them. I recognize it. I mean, he... You know, that's why he has nice things to say about the Viet Cong or or, or Castro or Ortega. That's who he is. I really believe that. I mean, but, you know, he's asked a question about low unemployment, and he runs off on this rant about billionaires again, and this is farcical. Well, I mean... Basically, he has the inequality card, right? I mean, that, that's what he needs to rely on. He can't say the economy is oh, – actually, the economy is terrible because it's nonsense. Most – a normal person will look outside and see that that's not true. Now, obviously, there are always some people who are suffering, but there aren't enough people suffering for him to act like an actual, you know, full-blown socialist. He has to rely on targeting millionaires. You know, he is about class. He cares about class differences, and that's what he's going to rely on. And no one likes a billionaire, right? So that's his talking point over and over again. I want to get into how we got here, where a socialist looks like he's going to be the Democrat. I mean, in a sense, yeah, I like to poke fun at the Democrats for how insane this is, but it's also an America problem. And I I do want to keep that in mind, that, that we've come to this point as a country where this is even being seriously considered. But first, I mean, just Anything for you last night in the debate? I mean, the big takeaway that most people had was that it was a terrible debate with bad questions and we didn't learn anything new. At least that was what I saw. What did you did you have anything that you thought, OK, well, that was worthwhile or that's a reminder of something that at least we should see? No, I, I did <laughs> okay. not. I thought that it was terrible. I think we learned anything. Uh, maybe we learned that Sanders is actually not going to be great when someone's full blown, you know, attacking him, you know, just full frontal attack on him, I think he's not going to react well. And these people who he's around rarely have attacked him for his actual ideas being crazy. It's more like, oh, we haven't evolved to that yet. People aren't ready for that yet. Well, 
that's not what Trump's going to do. Trump's going to call him a commie or whatever he comes up with, and he's going to constantly call him that. He's going to have to defend it. Are, do you have concerns? You know, we had, we had Rahm Emanuel before. I think we played a soundbite. We, we've had all these different Democrats now. I mean, David Axelrod, I, I love because he comes out and says Bernie Sanders is not a socialist. So we, we know that that's going to be a thing, right? That the guy who walks around saying nothing but I'm a socialist, we're going to be told he's not a socialist because, you know, up is down and down is up. Uh, but the Democrats that are worried that this is going to lead to not just a presidential loss, but a possible electoral wipeout across the board. How would you gauge your confidence level? Because I do remember 2016 with Trump, everybody thought Hillary was going to win pretty much. No, I am not one of the people who thinks that Bernie is going to lose for sure. I'm not one of the people who thinks that that it's going to translate into, you know, sweeps for the Republicans. In fact, I think people, especially when it comes to Trump, obviously I was wrong about that election. Um, But more than that, I think people compartmentalize who they vote for and they can treat Bernie as his own thing. And just as they treat Trump as his own thing, you have a lot of Republicans, you know, with, with bigger vote margins in, in some states than, than Trump had. And you have a governor here in Maryland, for instance, who is a Republican and has nothing to do with Trump. So I, I'm, not, I'm not sold on that idea, no. I am sold on the idea that Bernie is a real socialist. Just because a person can't get done what he wants done does not mean that that's not what he is. Yeah, he just inquiry he knows. Listen, he can't say we're going to nationalize every industry because it's impossible. So instead, you know, he does it a different way. He does it incrementally. He's a, he's a socialist. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm kind of amazed we're going to see this. We're also going to have a large chunk of the Democrat corporate media that has been very cautious and or hostile to Bernie for a while. If he becomes a nominee, that's all going to just disappear. And I think it'll be fascinating because, uh, real quick, do you think there'll be a never Bernie movement among Democrats? I feel like their lust for power, will that will never exist. 100% I don't think it will exist. Maybe, you know, during the primaries there'll be a faction like that, but I, I think that will there will be no uh, major anti-Bernie movement, and they certainly won't dominate television in the way that the never-Trumpers do. I want to come back and ask you about how we got here. We got David Harsanyi, everybody of National Review. Stay with us. Thanks for listening to the Bus, Sex, and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, back with David Harsanyi, NashReview.com, for his latest on this. Uh, David, I know you—you know—you've been writing about this. I, I, you know, I read the other day on air just a uh, an old, uh, an old, you know, piece in the press about how they used to drain the blood from execution victims, you know, political executions in Castro and Castro's Cuba before selling it to the Viet Cong. I mean, this is a really scary, bad regime. Bernie Sanders. Still likes to say nice things about it, even after he's had this initial stumble. What do you make of that? Well, even today, you know, in the past, he is basically any tyrant who was a communist that he was asked about, he defended in some way. I mean, you know, every single one during his lifetime that I can see. Um, and even today, he can't say, yeah, you know, I was wrong about Castro. I mean, that guy was terrible. He has to say there was a literacy program he liked as if communism was the, as if you needed communism to have a literacy program. You know, again, a lot of people pointed this out, but obviously no one says, boy, you know, Hitler was a real, uh, you know, environmentalist. It was that was a good part. We can't only say the bad, you know, talk about the bad things. It's preposterous. He does it because he has an ideological, uh, you know, he has ideological kinship with what Castro has, has done there. Uh, and m- maybe he doesn't like the authoritarianism, but that goes hand in hand. It goes hand in hand every single time because you can't have real socialism without compelling people to participate in stealing their property and making them do things. 
So he has never been asked to uh, to explain what in the Soviet Union he thinks was great that we should adopt, as he said at the time, because no no one asks him tough questions. And that Castro question was the toughest thing he's been asked. What was uh, for, for you? What's the scariest thing about a, a possible Bernie Sanders presidency? He keeps deflecting to every he says this thing about, you know, every other industrialized country has managed to do this. Uh, which is obviously very hazy on the details. But, you know, what, what, what is your response when people say, oh, we, we, can't, we can't be Sweden, we can't be Denmark? That's all Bernie Sanders wants. If we were Denmark, we'd have a, a very, very high tax rates for the middle class and the poor as well. There is not, they hardly have any progressive taxation compared. We have much bigger progressive taxation. They don't want Denmark here. Um, and they don't even understand what's going on in Denmark, and nor so nor so any of the Scandinavian countries where they have capitalistic, a capitalistic engine in a small country that uh, you know that and a, and a healthy, not healthy, but a generous welfare program. That's not what he wants. He wants to nationalize healthcare in this country. He wants to nationalize the energy sector in this country. And uh, you know that's my answer to that. Basically, you know, I, I mean, I think. You know, most people who keep saying, oh, why can't we be like Scandinavia, have no clue what's even going on there. The the Swedish rejected socialism after the 70s. They didn't embrace it. Yeah. Now, this is what I've been telling the audience, so I'm glad to hear that's the same same way like you're on. How do we how do we get to this point, though? I know you're going to be writing a national review in the next day or so about this specifically. You know, what has been the cultural uh, transition or rather the, the cultural process that has brought us to a point where a straight up socialist can be a, a serious contender for the American presidency? Well, uh, just let me preface this by saying, and I'm sure I've mentioned it on this show, um, that I am passionate about this mostly because I think my parents were defectors from a communist country. And uh, to see them still alive, having to, like, think about a socialist becoming president is actually pretty horrifying for me. No, wait, wait, I want to dig into that for a second, David. What did they tell you about? What was it like? What was it like in the old country? It was like that they gave up everything and left their family to come here because it was horrible. That's what it was like. I mean, they're from Hungary, and it wasn't. Let's remember, Hungary wasn't the worst of the communist countries, you know, as far as authoritarianism was concerned. wasn't probably as bad as East Germany or the Soviet Union, but it was bad enough where you couldn't. You were told what to do. You were told what you could buy. You were told what you can, you know, become in life, and they didn't like that. So they gave up everything to come here, thankfully, and um, so. To me, it's personal as well to, to hear people, to hear someone like Bernie saying the same kinds of things that I've been thinking about and studying for a long time, probably because of my parents. And growing up, you know, c- culturally, we never treated socialism as we should have or, the co- or communism as we should have. I was thinking the other day about how uh, everyone in this country knows what the Holocaust is, or most people, I hope, educated people do. They've seen pictures of it. They understand the death and inhumanity of it. How many people here have heard of the Great Leap Forward? Or how many people here know that there was a Ukrainian famine where far more people died than the Holocaust? You know, they don't know that. They don't see pictures because the academics in this country, the cultural stewards, you know, of this country don't care about that kind of thing. They they have whitewashed communism and whitewashed socialism. Well, that's why I've been telling I've been telling everyone who listens for a while to read The Great Terror by Robert Conquest, which is which is a study of effectively how academics in the West, UK and America, pretended that the great purges under Stalin didn't happen. Millions and millions and millions of people tortured, murdered, starved, killed, sent to Siberia, all of the above. People act like that didn't happen. 
Right, or or yeah, or they're apologists for things, or or even yesterday I saw it. I forget his name, but he was at BuzzFeed once, uh, saying America's just as bad as Cuba. We've been just as bad. You know, we are forced to say the pledge of allegiance in school. Also, like he these. Sometimes I wonder if they're just not educated enough or if they fool themselves or they don't care. But generally, I think what what happens is that socialism is enticing. It's kind of a religious it's, – it's, it's about feels. You know what I mean? I want to help the poor. I want to make people equal. And whether the Soviet Union's around or not around, people will embrace that. The Soviet Union was around. Bernie embraced it. He didn't care. So it's not just about not being around for that stuff. And first of all, we are around for that stuff, right? You have Venezuela, you have China, you have North Korea and other countries. So you're around for it. They just don't care. They think they can do it better and do it right. And, and again, it, I just want to quickly say, I'm not saying Bernie is Stalin, but I am saying no one walks around saying, hey, I'm a democratic fascist, right? Because it would be preposterous, just as, just as it's preposterous to say I'm a democratic socialist. And so you feel like if if people understood that, that, we're, that Bernie Sanders is not representing a future for because I, I think the American left largely. I mean, there are the true radicals that that want total social justice based economic re- reorganization and upheaval. But I think that in that for a lot of more normal Democrats, however you want to define that, they're like we're we're just trying to be more like Europe. That's what they say. And this is general thing of we're just going to be more like Europe. What do you say to that? I get it. I mean, I, I and I believe that that's what most normal Democrats probably want to do. Um, Europe is not a success, though. We're a success. We're much more successful than Europe. The more you organize and have top-down control of the of the economy, the more uh, stagnant your society is. The less uh, growth there is. Um, I, I just don't understand. Here's really what my problem is. I just don't understand what people are talking about. They act like we're in the middle. You know that we're 1917 Russia here or something like that. We're not. We're getting better. Everything's getting better. We're living longer. The, to, to try to now control the economy, to have someone take over your health care because it's, it's expensive, I mean, that has never worked. And health care I mean, is expensive. The, the two things that are outrageously expensive in comparison to what they used to be are two, as I like to point out, two of the most heavily government-regulated and government-involved areas of the economy, health care and education. Right, and also housing has gone up as well. But, you know, you... It is more expensive, but no one says things have to be cheaper forever. You also get a lot more. We live longer with less pain. We have incredible um, technological advances in medicine, and one day they're going to be cheaper when you know when we learn how to be more productive making those things. And the idea that we, we should hand that over to government to me is just it's un-American. And uh, you know, and I hope that enough Democrats realize that. Though I don't know how you stop. I, it. I actually think, and I, I'm trying to get you know more people to at least hear me out on this theory, there was a huge surge towards socialism after, during and after the Great Depression in America and in the West. The, the idea was that capitalism had failed and that socialism was the future, right? This is, and this was, it was communist propaganda, but this is what was believed by a lot of people, uh, you know, British, uh, British intellectuals, American uh, journalists. I think that we've entered a period where America is actually so peaceful and so prosperous that now we almost have the opposite problem where everyone's thinking, well, if we only gave the government more control, we could completely eradicate. Uh, you know, we, we essentially could get to utopia. We could inc- uh, completely eradicate poverty and pain and illness and all these other things. No, I think that's right. I think that people don't. Listen, there's always going to be a segment of the population that's suffering, obviously. So 
there are problems. We don't live in utopia. It's never going to be that way. But I, I do think that we have so few problems. Or another, so I agree with what you're saying, but I think another problem is we look at our political environment, which is ridiculous right now and has been for a while, and we, we, we sort of transpose that onto the real world. The real world is nothing like that. I live amongst my neighbors very peacefully. Everything is going pretty good for, the, for their lives. And um, But then they look at the havoc of politics and they think that that's how the country is is in general when it's not. So I think I think people have the wrong, even though, I don't know, there were polls, Gallup polls showed that most people are pretty happy and et cetera. But I think that people think there's a lot of turmoil when really they have less turmoil now than they've ever had in history. And what ever. about the, the points about the middle, you know, this keeps coming up that the middle class have it worse, the middle class have it worse. I mean, I've seen some Why? serious right-leaning, I guess you could say, economists who will point out that, you know, my parents' generation, for example, there were things that were, you know, less, there were things that were less expensive, even when adjusted for inflation and everything else. It seems like you're telling me also, yeah, but, you know, you carry around a supercomputer in your pocket and are going to live like 15 years longer and healthier, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, how, how do you deal with the, the middle class is getting a raw deal, right? This is what all those Democrats say. What's the truth of that? Yeah, well, the right-leaning people you're talking about are not serious in my book, but I will tell you this. Yes, some things are more expensive, it seems to me, houses, for instance, but they're also a million times nicer. I, I, mean, I mean that. Um, they're bigger. They're more beautiful. They're better built. They're safer. There are very few things today that are – take a car. I just saw a uh, – just saw a study on cars that when we were, when I was a kid, people would have their cars like five, six years, whatever it was. Now cars 10 years later are running. People have to return them. They're still in like really good shape. They could run, you know, they could go 200,000 miles and there would be no problem. Everything we have is a better quality. A dollar I spend on something on medical care, for instance, is far more useful today than it was back then. The idea that the middle class is, first of all, the middle class is growing. The upper middle class is growing. We're not getting poorer, we're getting richer. And people don't want to accept this for some reason, but the country is better. Now, obviously, we have some social problems and, and you know, the, the overdoses and all of that. And there are people, you know, those are moral problems and ethic problems and communal problems. I'm not sure that a government can solve those things. Not, you know, I, I just have never seen that happen before where government solves your depression, for instance. David Harsani dropping happy truth bombs for all of us to hear. I mean, <laughs> telling us that things actually are getting better. David's uh, stuff will be up at nationalreview.com. Read him there. Follow him on Twitter. Last name kind of spelled like it sounds, H-A-R-S-A-N-Y-I. David, thanks so much, man. Anytime. Thank you. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Team, we got another bomb drop by Project Veritas here. Uh, this time it's an ABC News correspondent who has been suspended in advance of what will be a Project Veritas video released. Veteran reporter David Wright was suspended. Uh, we have some of the audio producer, Mark. Project Veritas strikes again. Play it. You consider yourself a Democrat socialist? Yeah. I, like, what not? I consider myself a socialist. Well, terrible. I feel like it's like we, like the truth suffers. The voters are poorly informed. Our bosses don't see an upside in doing the job that we're supposed to do, which is to you know, speak truth to power and help people do it. The guys, like I'm a socialist. Okay, now this gets very interesting for me on, on a few levels. One, I, I think that Project Veritas has done some 
I mean, the best undercover, the most important undercover videos, although they actually make you want to throw up when you watch them, uh, that I've ever seen were from David DeLayden and the Center for Medical Progress. Um, and the fact that that did not result in a complete national revulsion and change in the view of, of abortion and abortion laws is a stain on this country's honor and integrity. But uh, Project Veritas does some good stuff. James O'Keefe uh, is, is, a, is a brave guy who works hard at what he does. I have been a little critical in the past, and I would continue to be, about posing as a colleague slash friend of somebody in off hours who happens to work for a news organization who's kind of like a low, you know, getting some AP assistant producer, some effectively close to entry level person or somebody who's, you know, maybe a couple rungs up the ladder from that and having them say some stuff. And, and then exposing that and getting them in trouble and ruining their career. I, you know, I think you, I think you got to be you got to be willing to draw some lines here. You know, it's one thing if, if you can get like a CNN anchor being like, yeah, I'm a socialist and I hate Republicans and I pretend to be neutral on TV. Yeah, that that's that, you know, you, you can break uh, break the confidence of somebody that you're posing as you know somebody having a normal conversation with. But the other stuff, I, th I think Project Veritas has gone after some people that are a little too low level, in my opinion. I I'm just going to say it. So I don't like everything that they do on this exposing bias realm. That said, they are doing the work. And this guy, I think, I mean, I don't know that much about the, the hierarchy over at ABC News, but this guy is a senior correspondent. He's been around for a long time. And he's getting in trouble here for saying what we essentially already know to be the case, what we already know to be true. And that is that these networks, you know, CBS did this debate last night, ABC, these are lib networks that are clinging to this fiction that they're neutral. And it's because that gives them an advantage over their competitors because they hold themselves up as, oh, see, we're the real journalists. We do the honest journalism here. And they're these massive legacy institutions with a huge amount of corporate money and power behind them. And so they still have, I mean, ABC News has 10 million people watching it a night. I mean, if you want to watch like a male model read off of a prompter, you can do that on any channel base. I don't know why people do. Oh, that could David Muir. You know, I'm like, OK, we're going to like see him take his shirt off. Like, what? why is everyone so excited about watching uh, this 30 minute broadcast? That's so and it always ends, too, with like, oh, on a happy story of like ducks on a pond that, you know, found their mother. I mean, I think I think this format is is hopefully going away soon you know abc they run this programming all day and then they then they throw on a news broadcast for 30 minutes or whatever it is at night same thing with cbs evening news like why, why does anybody think that they should watch this and it's old old habits i mean it goes back to when people that was their only option and they're used to doing that and so they keep doing it but they cling to this fiction because it gives them an advantage over their competitors and it should go away. A well-educated news consumer understands that ABC, CBS, NBC, they are liberal networks. They are pushing a liberal agenda. Their anchors are generally unimpressive and don't know very much about politics or the world. And this is just the reality we live in. So this senior guy saying that they spike stories that are pro-Trump, they run stories that are anti-Trump, he's a socialist. Just confirmation of what we already know. And if he's a senior enough guy, I mean, I think that that's... I think then that justifies the undercover approach to get this information about about this individual, um, you know. And I, so I, I think that I think that this one probably clears the bar for me in terms of a Project Ver Veritas sting operation. You know, getting some guy who's like a glorified intern to talk about the Bernie revolution. I, you know, I, I think you're just getting somebody in trouble. It doesn't really do all that much. Uh, so yeah, man, Project Veritas got another guy telling us what we know. Add add this one onto the list for. 
oh, you mean that a major news network is really biased and people shouldn't believe them when they pretend to be objective journalists? Yes. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Team, got a special treat for you today. We are joined by the one and only Matt Walsh. He has a new book out, Church of Cowards. He's going to tell us a bit about that. And also, uh, if you haven't already, you can check out his podcast, The Matt Walsh Show. And he's a writer at The Daily Wire. Matt, great to have you back on the show. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me, Buck. All right, let's start, with, uh, let's start with the book, and then I'll get into a little bit of current events, if that's all right. So, Church of Cowards, a wake-up call to complacent Christians – what do you want complacent Christians to know? Well, I think, uh, you know, when you, when you look at, at the, the situation in the church, I think most, most Christians, most believing Christians realize that, uh, that we have a problem, that the church is, is, is dying, essentially, not to, not to be too, too dramatic about it. But when you, see the, when you see the statistics of younger generation leaving the church, especially when they get to around college age uh, and, and faith is dwindling, when you look, and you look even more specifically at the number of Christians who will uh, affirm even the most basic doctrinal points of Christianity, those numbers are going down. Why is that? That's the question. And um, I think the answer is that in this, in this, in our culture in the West, as opposed to out in the East, in the Middle East, and places in Africa where they have real violent persecution they face, we don't face that. Our problem is almost exactly the opposite, where we're far too comfortable uh, and we're sort of just drifting along on the tide of the culture and, and going wherever it takes us. And in this case, it's taking us right into faithlessness and secularism and, and uh, relativism. And so this book is trying to call attention to that and, and basically hoping to, to, to rally Christians to resist that tide, because I think we've been just drifting with it for far too long. And why is that? I mean, people talk a lot about the culture and the, the influences that one has from just, you know, TV, movies, what's cool, you know, the VMAs, all, all this stuff. It tends to not be in line with it, with a, let's just say, a traditional Christian morality. Is there a way to infuse the culture with more of that, or is that a pipe dream? What do you make of it? Well, I think it has to start. It has to start with the church, and when I say the church, I mean you know Christianity generally, churches in general. Uh, it has to. It has to start there, and I, I think what the problem is that um, that many churches for a long time and Christian leaders have been scared, have been very reluctant, have been scared to challenge their flocks, especially morally. You know, to have a real moral message to call them to sacrifice and repentance and these things. Uh, and so it has to it has to be it has to begin with that. You know, we have, we, can, we can't be afraid to engage on a, on a moral level, um, and we can't be afraid of of engaging the culture, which is which has been the case which has been the case for so long. Now you're a Catholic. I'm a Catholic. What do you think of this Pope? You know, I'm I'm I can't say I'm a big I'm a big fan of the Pope. I uh, you know my my biggest my biggest issue with with Pope Francis is um, that. The one thing we need as Catholics and as Christians generally is moral clarity and direction. Uh, and that's the exact opposite of what we've been getting from the Vatican for years now, where it's just confusion. It's haziness. And, you know, it sounds like the Pope is suggesting that this or that change should be made. It sounds like he's even challenging some really fundamental points of doctrine. And that's what it sounds like. And then we're told, no, by the Vatican, no, it's not exactly what he meant. But what did he mean? I don't know. And it's just been the same game that's been played for years now. And all it does is it, it, it confuses people, and it makes devout Catholics feel 
betrayed and it makes us feel like, well, what, you know, it, it makes us feel like the, 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 the Pope does, just doesn't care the situation that we're in or doesn't, doesn't realize what it's like for us in this culture. Now, 41 senators, uh, Democratic senators, just voted against uh, giving medical care when babies are born, uh, born alive during an abortion procedure. Democrats claim this doesn't happen. I, I know this happens. Uh, we know this happens. There are people that have testified about it happening to them. Um, but then they go ahead and, and vote against this after saying it's not a thing. Then they say, well, even if it is a thing, we're not going to give protection to babies uh, who are born alive during an, an abortion procedure. I want to ask, you know, what do you think should be the appropriate, what is the appropriate response from, I, I don't mean to focus too much on the Catholic Church, but it, it is an area where uh, I think you and I have some similar views on this. Pelosi, Biden, people who, I'm, I think Biden, yeah, Biden claims to be Catholic as well. I know Pelosi will talk about her faith. What should be done when someone like Nancy Pelosi, for example, supports uh, publicly as a as a leader and as a legislator, uh, legislator, abortion for all nine months of a pregnancy, and then turns around and talks about how her Catholic faith informs her love for everybody? Well, I think it's a it's just a total mockery and a disgrace that these politicians are allowed to continue. Obviously, the Catholic Church can't stop them from saying whatever they want to say, but. The Catholic Church can say, well, if, you're, if, if this is a position you're going to take and you're going to try to lead people into scandal and in sin publicly, then you're not going to do it as a Catholic, and they should be excommunicated. This is a, this is a, uh, a tool that the Catholic Church has under its belt, and uh, maybe there was a time when it was a little bit too liberal in its use of it, but, uh, but in, in recent years and decades, it's, it just seems like there's nothing that a Catholic can do, apparently, at least in the West, uh, to get themselves excommunicated, but this is this is supposed to be exactly the situation it gets you excommunicated when you're on a public stage and you're denying basic fundamental doctrines of the Catholic Church and trying to importantly lead other people into denying it as well. That's when the Catholic Church is supposed to say, "No, you're not. This is you're, you're not in. You're clearly not in communion with us." And so you know, hit the bricks basically, and that's what should be said. There's, there's no argument I can see, uh, 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 you know, for allowing this to continue the way that the church has. What do you make of of Pope Pete's? Speaking of popes, Pope. By the way, we're speaking to Matt Walsh, who has a new book out that you all. Uh, should check out. You probably know Matt from the Daily Wire. His book is Church of Cowards, A Wake-Up Call to Complacent Christians. Uh, yeah, but Pope Pete, he, he seems to, even when it's not necessary, fall back on this, let me lecture Christians who are Republicans or conservatives about the immorality of their side. What's the Matt Walsh take on all that? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting that Republicans are the, are the ones who are accused of being Bible thumpers all the time, but but uh, yeah, Pope Pete or Pastor Pete, as I've called, you gave him the, you gave him the, uh, uh, you know, you promoted him, I guess, the Pope. But he, he's he's the one who brings up the Bible constantly, brings up brings his faith into it all the time, which I wouldn't have a problem with if it wasn't number one for the hypocrisy of it, but number two uh, that he's that he's distorting the biblical message to support some of the worst moral outrages that the world has ever seen. I mean, Buttigieg is in favor of abortion at every stage of development. He was given a chance recently at, a, I think it was a town hall, he was given a chance to at least come out against partial birth abortion, which is, uh, you know, the killing of a baby literally as it's being born and emerging from the birth canal. Uh, and he wouldn't come out against that. He, he, he apparently has no problem with that. And yet he's trying to use his faith uh, as, a, as a cudgel to beat other people with. And it's just absolutely hypocritical and wrong. And uh, Matt, I also want to get your take on what do you see happening right now? I mean, we had the debate last night. What do you see happening right now in this 
Democratic field. Are, are you concerned that Bernie Sanders, if he becomes the nominee, can actually win? I think he can win. I, I, my money wouldn't be wouldn't be on him. I think the smart money would certainly be against him winning because you know, for, for, all the, for all the obvious reasons, uh, number one, he's a communist. And it is hard to imagine that 30 years after, after you know, we win the Cold War that we actually elect a communist president. So that's hard to imagine. Uh, and on top of that, you know, it's also other things. I, I think the fact that he's going to be 79 years old at Inauguration Day, uh, you know, that's, that's also a problem that people recognize and, and so many other issues as well. So that's what would, uh, I think, put the odds against him. But I also think that many conservatives and Trump supporters have been a little bit too cocky and confident, basically guaranteeing that, you know, he's going to lose 45 states or whatever. Uh, he, he definitely has a chance to win because there are other things that are working in his favor. And you do you do see some interesting parallels between Bernie 2020 and Trump 2016. I mean, this is someone who, number one, has a very excited core of supporters who are not going to abandon him no matter what comes out against him. Just like just like Trump has always had. Trump had it in 2016. Uh, you know, he's he's he's. Uh, and it, but I think the most important thing about. Bernie that maybe people don't understand is that his his message is all about moral outrage. You know, that's his entire message. It's not an economic message. It's a moral message. And he's he's always out there talking about this is wrong, you know, income inequality and people can't get health care and kids with their student loan debt and yada, yada, yada. His, his whole message is this is wrong. It's evil. It, we, we have to stand against it. And I think his prescriptions for these moral problems are completely wrong. But the fact is, that's how he's he's rallying people, and it's a message that does resonate. And it's the same kind of message that Trump has always had, actually, I, I think. But Trump has had a message of, you know, the elites and the swamp, and they're taking advantage of the working man. It's a similar kind of message of moral outrage about people being taken advantage of. Um, and and few, so, it's going to be a few hundred thousand votes that determine who the next president is. I think everyone needs to remember that, too. It's not, it's not going to be like 10 million votes on one side or the other. It's going to be a few hundred thousand in about a half a dozen states. Right, right, exactly. So any, anything can happen. And when, and when you throw, just like we saw with Trump, you throw somebody like Trump into the mix, it's really hard to predict what's going to happen. And uh, I think it's the same thing with Bernie. It's just all, all of the normal rules that we, that we think we know for how politics works, they, they, they went out the window with Trump, uh, with Trump. Maybe they go out the window with Bernie, too. The book is Church of Cowards, A Wake-Up Call to Complacent Christians, available on Amazon now. Matt Walsh is the author of the, he's uh, at the Daily Wire. Before we let you go, Matt, one last quick one. The Avengers movies, amazing or garbage? Uh, I I have to say I think absolutely garbage. But yes, I'm, you know, I'm weird. I, I hate <laughs> producer Mark, too, eat that. He says it's garbage too. And Matt Walsh is a wise man, so we can address this one later in roll call. But producer, but Matt, you just made my day, my friend. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. You're welcome. No problem. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Got an interesting news story I wanted to bring to your attention, team. But first, I just want, I want to let producer Mark, because he was busy making sure that the audio quality was perfect on our call there with, with, with Matt Walsh of The Daily Wire. Um, I'm, we now got, we've now got three people, at least, officially. Congratulations. The Avengers are not it's good. It's something about, uh, I guess, Republican pundits. Yeah. You don't have time for fun. Yeah, gr- grumpy Republican pundits. That's what we, it is. That yeah, must be what it is. We do not like the fun. Uh-huh. We just want everybody reading, you know, Solzhenitsyn late at night, you know, so they exactly. understand the, the trials and tribulations of the world. So, you know, that's something we got going. We got that going for us, which I'll is I'll be nice. over here in my little fortress having fun. Yeah, you'll be in the penalty box watching the billion-dollar franchise, multi-billion-dollar franchise, yeah. I think, now that it is.
Probably yeah. billion. You know, I actually tried to go back and watch a little bit of. Uh, there was an old Disney, you know, I've, I've been having a lot of fun with Disney Plus because I got a family member subscription, you know, so, of course. It's, you know, of course, as one does. Yeah. And they had the old X-Men cartoon from mm. way back. Have you ever seen it? There was an Probably X-Men cartoon from yeah. way back in the day, like 20 some odd years ago. Um, and, you know, it was pretty good. It was pretty good. I got to say. They have you know? everything on there. Like anything yeah. you could imagine is on Disney Plus. I mean, I I, I got to tell you, I, I don't know if you have real opinions on this. I've seen some of the new Disney stuff just out of curiosity. And when I say new, I mean the last 10 years. Uh, it's just not, in my opinion, the same quality as some of the original Disney greats. You know, Lady and the Tramp. Uh, you know, you go into Sword in the Stone. Uh, you know, all, all the all the Snow White, all those things. I think they're in a different a different quality than, you know, I tried to watch I tried to watch Moana. It's not good. Oh, my wife loves that. Really? She really does. I, I she sings the song. Mm. I, I, I couldn't uh, get... And, and I also... I don't know Toy why... Story? What's up? The newest Toy Story? That was quality. Yeah. I, I also... I, I, took, uh, I took a date a while back to... Uh, at, at the date's request to Frozen. The musical? And, yes. Did you enjoy it? Um, it was a nice date. <laughs> I enjoyed the date. She is lovely. The musical, I don't even understand what the story is really supposed to be. Uh, so I haven't watched the cartoon, but I did go to the Broadway show, and it's not clear to me exactly. So she, like, freezes her sister, and then she goes away because she's afraid that her power of freezing will be used too much. And then it turns out that her sister is going to marry some bad guy, and she prevents him from marrying. I mean, it's like, it's a mess. Kids love. Frozen. They love it. Love it. They absolutely. I do not like, understand. My wife's little cousin, maybe three years old, only will dress in Frozen outfits. Yeah. I mean, I actually think you could argue the best Disney movies, Beauty and the Beast, is is a fantastic movie. Yeah. I know, you know people say, oh, but that's well, a great movie. But one, almost one best and picture. Actually, that was actually the best live action one. Oh, really? Yeah. That, I didn't was, see it that. It was really good. One with um, Hermione from yeah, Harry yeah, yeah. From, yeah, from Harry Potter. Uh, I mean, Lion King's amazing. Lion King, for what it is, I think, yes, is a fantastic course. cartoon. Aladdin. That's actually one of Robin Williams, rest in peace, one of his best things. Absolutely. It's certainly up there with like Mrs. Doubtfire. Um, So the Disney cartoons have been amazing and these, you know, these cultural icons. And I just feel like some of the more recent ones, I mean, I know kids love Frozen though. I don't know. I I still It still makes money for these, for the company. I still don't understand what the, yeah. Anyway, so- you know, I go around that. I'm not going to talk anymore about but, the Mandalorian, but if you haven't seen you haven't seen it yet, no, so I don't know. But okay. I will point out these cartoons, the newer ones, they're, they're not for your 38-year-old man. No, no, I get that. Yeah. But see, what I'm saying, though, is I can I can still appreciate, like, Lady and the Tramp, even if you're an adult, is is a, is great course, for what it is. Of course, but you look at cartoon. it through your childhood. Maybe, yeah. Like, you remember yeah. it and it gives you that warm feeling yeah. that you're a kid. But, or, or yeah. you know, Rob, the Robin Hood with the, the Robin Hood as a yeah. fox. I don't know if you know, like, th- those are great cards. You know, I those are great to this day. So I just think, that, you know, so I, that's right. I don't have any of the emotional connection. You know, I saw, like, The Lion King with my parents yeah. in the theater, I remember. So Maybe when you have kids, you'll get that emotional connection back. Well, no, I'll stuff. just have to sit there and watch the Disney things they want to watch for, like, hours and hours and yeah, hours at a time. Or, or, or I'll put them in front of it and I'll get to, like, be on my computer trading yeah, stocks. Yeah, you'll be the curmudgeonly old right, guy Right, of course. Who's like, oh, whatever. Let it go, let it go. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, the whole. Exactly. Yeah, just like that. That's how I'm going to do it. Oh, the story I was going to tell you guys, <laughs> the news story, since we're not talking about Disney anymore, um, is that the, uh, a court of, uh, let me make sure I get this one right. A court has, in fact, ruled in favor of the administration. This just came down today. 
um, the Second Circuit has allowed the Justice Department to withhold grants from New York City and seven states over sanctuary funding, reversing a federal judge's ruling from 2018. This is big. This is big. This is going to make its way uh, up to the Supreme Court now, I, I think. I mean, the Supreme Court has to decide to take it. But I, I could see this going all the way because shouldn't the federal government, if it has a legal request or if it has a legal request of states that it makes and it has discretionary funds that it gives them to help with that, and then that state or city does not provide that assistance, doesn't the federal government as an entity then have the ability to pull back those funds? Isn't isn't that federalism actually working the way that it's supposed to? As, as long as it's tailored in that way. We give you law enforcement funds to help us, and we would like help on this thing, and it's legal for the federal government to ask. This is all about illegal immigration now. Shouldn't there be the ability for the federal government to pull back those funds? The fight over sanctuary cities, this is, uh, you know, the administration should focus in on this. There was not a single question in the debate last night uh, that I can remember, at least. Not a single question about immigration. Not one. It's crazy. Not, not, a, not one question about immigration. It's nuts. What's, when you think, I mean, this is a, seri- a huge issue, huge issue for security, for the economy, for the future of this country. Everyone's been saying for years and years now on both sides, you know, the system is broken. We got to fix it. We got to do more. No, instead, last night, it was like a, a bunch of bickering and a, and a wokeness competition at different parts. It was really, it was really, as we've all agreed uh, who have watched the debate that I've talked to you so far, it was a really weak showing. Um, but this is somewhere where the administration, I mean, Trump rose uh, to prominence in the in the Republican field. He got ahead of his competition on the issue of immigration. This is where he separated himself. And he was willing to say the stuff that people needed and wanted to hear about this. You know, he was the one who was saying, we used to all agree. You know, there used to be this consensus on building a wall. There were laws passed by Congress about building barriers at the southern border to prevent illegal entry. And now all of a sudden that's anathema. Now that's, you know, beyond the pale. You're not allowed to have that talk even. You never mind actually enact it. So I'm I'm happy to see because this is also Bernie Sanders. He he's going to lose the left on this immigration issue. If you push him, he's not. It's not really clear where he stands in immigration because it conflicts with his his workers. You know, workers of the world unite. Well, I guess workers of America unite thing. So this will be interesting to see this play out. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. We got Dubstep Roll Call intro, and I feel like Dubstep has has faded out again. You know, it's like every 10 years, people rediscover some form of, you know, what they call EDM, electronic dance music, which I think technically is Dubstep. Dubstep is EDM, right? It's like a subcategory of EDM. 
It's like communism is a subcategory of socialism. Sure. Dubstep is a subcategory yeah. of, e- of EDM. Same exact thing. Right? Though. Same, same thing. That's how I think about things. No. Um, but yeah, like I don't see that guy Skrillex anymore with the weird haircut and the cigarette dangling I mean, out of I'm his sure mouth. I'm sure he's still around. Yeah, I'm probably making like a million dollars a night DJing for you know people yeah. all over like Austria. Like, yeah, play more of the EDM music. Okay. Yeah. I think the Chainsmokers have taken. This is like the, the best big part of my life. Wait, the Chainsmokers, the band. Yeah. Oh. They're like, they do remixes of songs and they always like collaborate that's what they always do collaborate with other artists i i had a i've had this experience now where i went back because spotify which is incredible and actually you know i'm on spotify because people from team buck made fun of me for using pandora still Mm. saying that i'm a a grumpy old man i shouldn't use pandora pandora's for like gen x not quite millennials right but in between boomers and so if you're born in like the mid late 70s you're a pandora user if you're Mm -hmm. born in the 80s you're supposed to be on Team Spotify. Spotify. Yeah. And I don't know. What are you, what are you, what are I'm you, on Apple Music because Apple. I get it for free through my cell phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So there. But I, I went back and looked at, at all the, the top songs. It's I mean, They're not. The stuff for the last 10, 10 years, no one's going to be listening to in 10 years. So when our parents, as much as I, as much as I feel like boomers love to shove their music down the world's throat, you know, every car commercial has got to be like a, a Rolling Stones song or, you know, whatever. Um the truth is that that music is timeless in a way that a lot of the stuff from the last 10 or 15 years I don't think will be. I think certain artists will be. Like Adele, you can throw out there, Correct. Lady Gaga, maybe Justin Timberlake, it's people gonna, like that. It's But it's a small subset of oh, the yes. overall. Whereas, you know, if, if, if you put on... There's, there's a lot of times now where I'll put on a song that is even an artist that people don't even really remember all that well. I mean, I think this is true of 80s music, for example. If you like 80s music, there's so many different songs and bands you can yeah. put on that even if you don't know what it is, you're like, I like this. There's a lot of one-hit wonders in the 80s Oh, and yeah, 90s. for sure. Yeah. yeah, I mean, look, 80s was kind of a funky time. But I, I just, Skrillex, Dubstep, I remember that that was a huge for a little while, maybe 10 years ago, and now that it's That type just... of music, like the remixes of actual songs, is great for when you're working out. Yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that's true, actually. You know, you know what my favorite band of all time for working out is, actually? And, and their politics are horrible. They're they're like actual communists. I'm sure they're all millionaires, just like Sanders. Um, Rage Against the Machine. Hmm. If you're working out, Rage Against the Machine gets it gets it done. That's a completely different category of music. Oh yeah, that's like uh, headbanging. Oh yeah, no, yeah. that's like that's like heavy. I mean, I think it's I think it's considered heavy metal. Heavy metal, yeah. Yeah. I don't think I can work out to that. No, but it's really yeah. Some of them. I'll, we'll, 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 I, I have a beast mode playlist on Spotify. All I right. should share with you. I'll have to get it's it. It's got two hundred songs, man. Wow. I keep it fired up in the hut. All right. Now we get roll call. We get some of the folks that have got thoughts and things for us, and we appreciate that. Oh, but one one quick programming note. Uh, I will have my friend Ben Weingarten in on the show on Friday because I have to travel to L.A. to be on the Bill Maher show, which I will be doing this Friday night. It is 10 Eastern on HBO. I believe 10 Eastern. It might be 9 Eastern. I think it's 10 Eastern. Uh, and it'll be interesting. It's going to be a spicy time, a spicy meatball to be a spicy time to be on the Bill Maher show. So I'm uh, looking forward to that. Uh, no surprise here. I will be the only conservative on the show that night. And that audience is not going to be super psyched about what I have to say. But you, team, are the ones that I'm speaking to when I do that show, as well as triggering literally millions of libs. So that will be fun, too. Uh, but if you get a chance, do tune in. I like to know the team is watching and rooting for me. And say nice things to me on Twitter afterwards, because, man, my Twitter mentions after I do that show, terrifying. Uh, the libs come after me like like a plague of lib locusts 
like a bunch of angry progressive piranhas. L- look at this alliteration my, that I pull off. Get my popcorn ready. Yeah. That's what I'll do Friday night. Yeah. Producer Mark's going to be like, ah, look at him. Because when I go there, boo, live audience is going to boo me. I mean, maybe my, I can my read out the best tweets on the air on Monday. <laughs> we could do it. Oh, after the Bill Marshall, we could definitely do a mean tweet session for sure. <laughs> Woo, we'd have to get out the bleep button, though. All right, Kyle is first up here in Roll Call. Hey, Buck, you have an awesome show. Thank you, Kyle. You have fantastic taste. I think all the political speculation that Bernie has the best shot of getting beaten by Trump is not correct. I believe Bernie has the best shot out of all the Democrats to win the presidency. The reason I say that is if Bernie gets screwed out of this nomination, Bernie bros won't vote for the Democratic nominee. They may actually vote for Trump to send a message. There is a decent amount of evidence to support that theory. On the other hand, the rest of the Democrat voters would vote for Bernie because it's someone opposing Trump. I don't like how the Republicans have been underestimating Bernie. That's what the libs did to Trump, and we all know how that went. You and a few others are the only ones I hear not saying to write him off and to take him seriously. We won't lose if we get out and vote, but if we are overconfident in a victory, we will have a socialist in office. You're the man, Buck. Shields high. Thank you, Kyle. Uh, yeah, I, look, I take Bernie. I take Bernie very seriously. I, I don't, I'm not writing him off at all. I think that if there's any lesson from 2016 we have to learn, it's the media doesn't know squat, and American politics is a very different game than we had thought before. And you know, in, in this new this new media environment, meaning social media, digital media, it's just ever the game has changed the game has changed and bernie sanders is an outsider at a time when it feels like outsiders are um able to pull off things that completely fly in the face of the conventional wisdom see donald trump right i mean this is this is pretty self-evident so yeah uh I, i take him very seriously i don't know if bernie voters i mean this is what you're really getting at i don't know if bernie voters would really refuse to support the Democrat nominee or not. It's possible. You could be right on that. I think that it really is going to depend on what happens here. If someone were able to really legitimately surge, and I don't even know how that would be possible at this point, but like, let's say Biden. Let's say Biden managed to run the table in the, in the contest and there wasn't some real theory about you know, malfeasance from the DNC, you know, there's not super delegates or something like that. Do I think Bernie voters would, would probably go and vote for Biden because they hate Trump so much? Yeah, I do. But who knows? You know, we're all just guessing because we're talking about assessing trends that involve millions and millions and millions of individual decisions. And it's very it's very tough for anybody to get that right ahead of time. Uh, everybody in the political prediction game needs to maintain a healthy healthy dose of humility. Peter writes, Ronkonkoma does have a beach. It's around the lake. It's okay. Nothing special. Most people go to Fire Island or Robert Moses. It's one of the few things I miss about Long Island. Here in Kingston, there isn't much beach-wise. Long Island is an overpopulated nightmare waiting to happen. Anyone there after Superstorm Sandy knows it's a ticking time bomb. Ultimately, I want out of New York. Probably Pennsylvania by mid-2021. Producer Mark, what what say you about this Long Island assessment? Oh, Long Island's awful. Really? Highest taxes in the entire country, and that's on Suffolk. Wow. Between property taxes, income tax, all that. Yeah, highest. It's overcrowded. The Long Island Railroad is an abomination. 
It's an awful place. What do you think I'm getting out? Yeah. I could never, like, raise a family there. Wow. Well, never. I do know that getting a police... So I know this because of when I was in the NYPD and the cops would often talk about how, like, getting a, a job as a law enforcement officer, as a cop in Nassau County, I think this, the average starting salary is, like, 120 grand. And so becoming a police officer there, your, your chances, like... Per application is like point oh one or something. Yes, and it's it's like impossible because because they're so highly paid and the tax base has to be super high, obviously, to do that. No matter what, they make you redo the academy. I know somebody who was NYPD and was looking to maybe go to Nassau or Suffolk. He couldn't just join the force like in any other force in the country. You have to redo the academy, even wow. though NYPD is probably the best academy. And you've heard that too that they're super, they're very high. Like for yeah, that side, very high salary. I think too. they have the highest but, starting but law. You can't not have a high salary with those taxes. With those taxes and, and the property yeah. taxes, yeah. Yeah. Cost no. of living is ridiculous on Long Island. Actually, I went to, so I was supposed to go to a a big party for charity. I'll never forget this, uh, that a, a very, a very good friend of mine was throwing out in Suffolk County. And the venue, which was a, like a party venue that you could rent, sort of like for weddings or whatever. Yeah. The venue got shut down the day before because the venue didn't think that they, uh, for whatever reason, they, they didn't think that they had to pay the, the local Suffolk, uh, you know, the... There's like a, a, a liquor fee that you pay yeah, for course. the town that they didn't think. They're like, oh, no, it's a private thing. Whatever. No, 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 no. And those Suffolk cops showed up and they were like, no charity party. We don't care. You pay the tax, my man. There's a, or fee, else. For a fee or a tax a fee. for everything. everything. Yeah. They didn't pay the like public liquor. You know, it, wasn't, it wasn't a liquor license because they weren't selling it. But if you're going to have a large enough gathering, yeah, you have to have some almost like a keg fee or something like that. Sure. And you have to go to the, the local PD and you have to get it. They didn't get it. Party canceled. Canceled. Because of this, that I was like, "Wow, these Suffolk cops! These they guys don't mess around." Nickel and dime you for the amount. Last year, I needed the inspection. You don't have to get an inspection on your car every year. The I guess it expired the day before. Immediately got a ticket. I've been out to uh, I've been out to uh, East Hampton and so Southampton a few times in the last I'd say decade or so. I'll never forget. I was out and I was driving a, like a rental car in Southampton, and I did like a three point turn on a street that I'm telling you there were no cars, no people, no nothing. And and the the a cop who was on foot like waved me over yeah. and and I sort of like drove up I'm like yeah like there's nothing like I I was it was the middle of the day there's nobody there it was a lady cop and she's just like look like I'm gonna let this go but you just broke a double line by doing that and like I could I think she said it was like a two hundred and seventy five dollar fine surprised. and I looked at her I was like I was like you you really like are you in what, in what universe could this be dead? She's like, no, no, I'll let it go this time. And I was like, you're good. You guys would honestly, t but it's because I had, you know, it's a rental, rental plate. Yep. I'm a weekender. I'm just there visiting friends or something. They don't care. They will rinse you in you these places. Could, you could be a resident. They would do that to you. Oh, yeah, no, of course. A red light well, it depends. ticket. If you're, if you're a year-rounder, it's different. Yeah. I know this because I actually dated a girl who lived on Martha's Vineyard, and I was with her in the car when a cop pulled her over for actually speeding. And he's like, oh, he's like, how's your dad? You know, you know like, like, you're right. <laughs> like, if you're a townie in these towns, you go right That's away. Fair. If you're a summer person, they, oh, they, man, they turn you upside down, and they, they empty out your pockets. Do you know how much a red light ticket is in Nassau County? How much? $150. <laughs> See, that's what I mean. It's just ridiculous. It's crazy. Yeah. They just take, they take you to the cleaners, man. That's what they do. Anyway, oh, oh Strong Island. Those of you who have never been out there, there are, I mean, there are beautiful beaches. That's yeah. why people it's pay. It's a beautiful place, but yeah. you have to pay to, to be well, there. It's a, it's a little bit, it starts to feel a little bit, sound a little bit like California. Too much traffic, too expensive, yeah. you know, by the coast. That's what's going on in California, too. 
Uh, Greg, Buck, I know I always write in. Well, Greg, we love it. But I become a bigger and bigger fan every single day I listen to you. Never has common sense been such so widely spoken. On another note, I think the Republican Party should rename itself the Freedom Party. I think that would resonate a lot better with voters. Just an idea. Shields high. Well, Greg, thank you for the kind words about the show. And that's really a, an endorsement of what we do here, that you feel like every day the show gets better and better. So thank you so much for that. Um, and we appreciate it. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Rick writes, Hi, Buck and producer Mark. Love the show. Volunteering, uh, volunteering for military service offers solutions to many of what Bernie views as problems in our country today. Free clothes, free food, free place to live, regular promotions and pay increase simply for doing your job. Weekends off, opportunities to travel, on-the-job experience from day one. 20, year of, 20 years of service will generate a military pension for a lifetime. You can't do this anywhere else. Just saying. Shields high, brothers. Well, Rick, I'm assuming you are a veteran. It sounds like you are, based on uh, the, your description here. Um, and, uh, yeah, obviously that's, you know, serving your country is certainly a, a, a honorable and fantastic option for a lot of people that, that want to do it. Um, I think we all know Bernie Sanders was not about the He was not interested in signing up at any point. Jeffrey Buck, there are 23 movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. For reals, I'm a fan that's been with you since the Real News Days, Shields High. Well, thank you so much, Jeffrey. 23 movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, I was trying not to tell you how many there actually were. That's a ton. Yeah. I didn't realize Ant-Man is one of them, by the way. Yeah. I saw this in the... The guy from Clueless is uh-huh. now a superhero? Yeah. Ant-Man's one of the funniest. In is it good? The, it's great, yeah. Huh. Both Ant-Man and then Ant-Man and the Wasp. I, I, I didn't even know this is a thing. Yeah. Yeah, I got to learn more about this. Mm-hmm. I also, though, I was not a, a Black Panther fan at all as a movie. Because you probably like, looked at it with politics glasses on. No, I, 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 nope, I, that's not fair. Like, I will say the Motorcycle Diaries, which is about the rise of Che Guevara, Ernesto Guevara, people call him Che, which means dude. Uh, Motorcycle Diaries is a really compelling movie. It's also, it also turns Che Guevara, who's a monster, into like a Jesus figure, basically. Like he's like just wants to heal the sick and help the poor and everything else. Good movie, horrible politics. I just didn't think. I mean, Black Panther, the society is more advanced than any other society in the world. They have like special technology doesn't ex- exist anywhere else. But they choose the leader by having like a, a blood sport death match. It doesn't seem to add up. Man, to it's me. supposed to be like old tribal ways. Kind yeah, of but thing. but I mean, if you got the most advanced technology in the world, like when you know what I mean? I don't know. I was a little. I just thought it, was, it seemed a little bit strange to me. And also, the thing with the rhinos at the end, where like there's the CGI rhinos running over people. I wasn't into it. I'm just saying. I know everyone's supposed to love the movie Black Panther. To me, there were some cool parts. I you know I thought some of it was pretty good, but. I don't know. I know. I'm. I'm. What can I say, folks? I just don't understand you. I know. I. Yeah. I it doesn't make sense to a lot of people. Mark writes in. This is just a name thing. I have to agree with Mark, of course, on the Avengers. Endgame is only one of a series I had is the only one of the series I had any emotional response to. Love the show as always. All right, another another like vote for producer Mark's analysis on this one. But comes from this isn't you, right? No, I, yeah, You're not I writing wrote it in yourself. Myself, yeah. yeah. You gotta you gotta keep uh-huh. an eye on this guy. Like I said, I'm gonna go back and uh, and check it out. Scott writes, "Hey, Buck." Bernie saying Castro isn't all that bad because he instituted a literacy program is like praising Hitler for always paying the gas bill. Gloves off. Shields high. Scott, you said it, man. I don't know why Bernie feels the need to do that, but uh, he's, you know, it's not helping himself. It's not the right thing to do. Richard. 
my wife is a teacher, so she would drag me along to judge high school debate tournaments. That is what love is. Those high schoolers behave better than these candidates and could moderate a, a debate better than CBS did. Did you catch where Bloomberg slipped up and said he bought the 40 reps who took the House? That is Bloomberg. He thinks he can just buy the election. And this whole wealth tax thing, it's only going to be 2% at first. The income tax is only 1% at first. Then Wilson sent it sky high, shields high. Good stuff from Richard. Team, I'm going to have a fantastic show tomorrow. If you get a chance, tune in tonight, please, on the iHeart app for the uh, WOR show, 710WR, if you're in the New York area. The Buck Sexton Show has a local branch on WOR at uh, 6 Eastern. And um, there we have it. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Shields high.